I realized this week as Holly and I were talking about the fact that every Sunday we see somebody for whom it's their first time back in person and how great it is to see that person, but how we've failed to say welcome. If this is your first time being back in person, welcome. Maybe for you, maybe it was weeks ago, uh, welcome to you as well. Maybe there's some people watching online and maybe their next week in next week will be their first time in person in a while, or maybe it'll be a week or two from then, but we love you and we appreciate you and we are so glad to spend some time together this morning worshiping God and thinking together about who we are and where we're going and how we're, we're living. I heard a story this week that I thought was not only kind of humorous, but also I thought related to what we're talking about just a little bit. There was a, a mom in California, her name was uh, Kaylee, and Kaylee said that she had this succulent plant. In fact, she shared a picture on Facebook and she had this succulent plant that, that she thought was really beautiful. She really liked it. And so for two years, she cared for it. And if you've ever had one, I, I know that I've had one and I've messed it up more times than not. But uh, she, she cared for it meticulously for two years. She had this schedule for how she was going to care for it and water it and take care of it. And in fact, when other people would offer to water her succulent plant for her, she told them no. She didn't want anybody messing up her plant. She would keep it in a special place by the window. She had, she just loved this little plant. And then she found a beautiful vase and she thought, oh, this succulent plant would look really good in this vase. And so she decided she was going to transfer it from the pot that she bought it in to this, this new vase. And that's when she realized that for two years she had been caring for a plastic plant. It had been fake all along. And, and I, I couldn't help but think, I couldn't help but think that, what was that like for two years? What was that like when, when, I'm sure that she thought there were days when it was doing better than other days, right? Oh, it's really, it's really looking good today. Oh, it's really green today. Its leaves are looking really good. And I, I can't imagine that throughout that time that there were times that she thought that it was changing and growing and, and sometimes it was healthier than at other times. But all of that change was merely in her imagination. Now, before we laugh too much at Kaylee, she shared it for herself, you know, so, so we can laugh a little bit. But before we laugh too much, I can't help but think about my own life. What about my last two years? How much have I really grown? Is the growth that I think that I see in myself real or is it merely imaginary? Am I a different person now than I was two years ago or three years ago or four years ago? Am I a better follower of Jesus today than I was a few years ago? Am I a better husband now than I was before? Am I a better father now than I was before? Am I a better neighbor now than I was before? Am I a better son than I was before? Am I really growing? Do I have more knowledge now than I had two years ago? Have I had more victories than I had two years ago? Have I gotten beyond some of my struggles that I had two years ago? Now, it's really easy to fool myself into thinking that I'm changing. It's easy to fool myself into thinking that I'm growing. It's easy to fool myself into thinking that I'm learning. Is my growth real or is it merely imaginary? Now, how about you? Let's get really personal this morning and think about this. Over the last couple of years, how much have you grown? How many victories have you had? How many struggles have you gotten beyond? How much knowledge have you gained? How, how much have you really grown? Are you a better spouse? Are you a better parent? Are you a better neighbor? Are you a better grandparent or aunt or uncle or brother or sister or son or daughter? How much have you grown 
over the last couple of years. We need to be real and we need to be intentional about looking at our lives for signs of life and growth. Looking at our lives for signs of life and growth. Am I really spiritually alive? Am I really spiritually growing? That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks and we're going to continue to think about that and apply this idea of discipleship specifically to our homes, to our families, and ask, are there signs of life and growth in our homes? Are we really growing in the areas in which we should be growing? Are we really growing? Or do we fool ourselves into thinking that we're growing? And the source of that growth, thankfully, you are not the source of that growth. Thankfully, I am not the source of that growth. Thankfully, the answer isn't just try harder. Thankfully, it's God through Jesus who has given us everything we need to grow. In fact, that's the passage we've been thinking about in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter says, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, His divine power, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, again, we've been encouraged by this promise. And I don't know about you, but the last few weeks, my family and I have been working on memorizing this passage, and we've been thinking together as a family about what does this mean for us? What does it mean that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, everything we need to have to live and to grow as his people? He's given it to us. It's ours. In Christ Jesus, it's ours so that we can become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful, what? Desires. And that's where I want us to think about this morning. That's what I want us to, to really meditate on this morning. The, the Greek word there is epithumia. Epithumia, the sinful desires. Because that's what we're struggling against, isn't it? That's what is causing the corruption that's in the world. And not just the world out there, but the world in here. That's what we're struggling against. That's what our battle is against, is against sinful desires. And all throughout the New Testament, so much is said about this epithumia, this longing for that which is forbidden. Longing for that which is forbidden. And we, we all know some of those things that we struggle with, don't we? Those desires that we have, those longings that we have, those passions that we have to take hold of something that doesn't belong to us. Something to, to have that we shouldn't have. Something to experience that we shouldn't experience. Something to do that we shouldn't do. We know what we should do and what we shouldn't do so many times, but we have a longing, a desire to do what we shouldn't do to experience what we shouldn't experience, to be who we shouldn't be. And it's those desires against which we are struggling. And I just want to look at some of the things Peter himself says about this epithumia, this desire. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14 in his previous letter, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, epithumia, do not be conformed to the passions of your former 
ignorance. Those, those desires that you're still trying to put to death, those desires that you're still struggling with, that's part of your former ignorance. That's who you were before. That's what you did before. That's how you lived before. But now you're something different. So don't be conformed to those former passions. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, no longer, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, and here's our word again, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are, I love this word, they are surprised. They're surprised. They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They speak badly about you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We may have experienced that, haven't we? On one side or the other, that the unbelieving world is surprised. They're surprised when you don't indulge your desires, right? They're surprised when you don't indulge your desires. They're surprised when you don't join them in indulging your desires. You want to do that. You like to do that. That's fun to do that. That's pleasurable to do that. Why don't you do that? Why don't you, why don't you join us in doing this? And they're surprised. Why would, you, why would you not do that? In fact, it makes people a little bit uncomfortable when you don't join them in indulgence, doesn't it? When a group of people are indulging themselves and they know that you're not, they know that someone is not, it kind of makes them a little bit uncomfortable. What? They think they're better than me. Why are they not doing this? Why are they not joining me? And Peter says, they malign you. They speak badly about you. In fact, we have a, a term that we use, a wet blanket, right? A wet blanket. Somebody's being a wet blanket. They're not joining in the indulgence. This is, this is the life to which we're called. Do we understand that? Do we accept that, that as followers of Jesus, this is the life to which we're called, that there, there is going to be so much of our life that is spent saying, nope, 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 not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that. Yes, I want to do that. Yes, I have a desire for that. Yes, I have a longing for that. Yes, I have a passion for that. Yes, I understand the attraction to that. Yes, I understand why you're doing that. Yes, I used to do that, and I understand why you're doing that, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to go down that path anymore. I've decided to go a different direction. I've decided to live a different kind of life, and I'm not going to do that. Not because I think I'm better than you, not because I hate you, not because of any reason, but my Lord has called me to a different life. And so I'm not going to indulge these passions. I'm not going to indulge these desires. And we have to understand that people will be surprised by that restraint. People will be surprised by that self-control. People will be surprised that you don't join them in their indulgence. And they will. They will speak poorly about you. As parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, that's something for which we have to prepare our children, isn't it? We have to prepare our children for the fact that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you decide to be a follower of Jesus, that not only will you have to say no to certain things, not only will there be certain desires and longings and passions that you have to say no to, 
There will be friends that you have, neighbors that you have, acquaintances that you have that will not understand why you're making the decisions that you're making. And not only will they not understand and be surprised, they'll not like you for it. They'll think you're strange. They'll think you're weird. They'll think you're bizarre. They will speak badly about you because of that. But don't let that weaken your resolve. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then again, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. We have to recognize this, don't we? Because, again, we live in a culture that says, do whatever you have a desire to do. Follow your passions. Follow your heart. Follow your longings. If it feels good, then do it. If you think it might make you happy, then indulge in it. Do whatever you want to do. But that's not the way of Christ. And if we decide, if we decide, and nobody's forcing anybody to be a follower of Jesus, but if we decide to be a follower of Jesus then we're recognizing and accepting the fact that these desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. That there are desires that I have inside of me. There are passions that I have in me. There are longings that I have in me that when I, and if I indulge those things, that it is self-destructive. And Jesus is saving me from that life. He is saving us from that life. And if we're going to follow Jesus, it means that we're not going to indulge those passions, those desires. It means we're going to exercise self-control. So in the next verse, when Peter says, back to 2 Peter chapter 1, when he says, for this reason, because God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, because this is true, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. And I just want to spend, now that we've kind of talked about passions and desires, I want us to think about self-control, because that is not indulging those desires. So what is what is self-control? Why is it why is it worth it to be self-controlled? Why is it important to be self-controlled? And then finally, how? How do we exercise self-control? So what is it? Why is it important? And how do we exercise it? Now, this idea of self-control was nothing new to Christians. This, this word or this concept was nothing new. In fact, 300 years before Jesus, Aristotle said this. Aristotle said about self-control, or as it's defined here or translated here as self-restraint, the self-restrained man is the man who abides by the results of his calculations. Think about that for a second. He abides by the results of his calculations. The unrestrained one who readily abandons the conclusions he has reached, that the unrestrained man does things that he knows to be evil under the influence of passion, whereas the self-restrained man, knowing that his desires are evil, refuses to follow them on principle. 
So Aristotle says, here, here's what restraint is. Self-restrained people, self-controlled people are those who make a calculation. They, they calculate, they decide, they have principles, and they say, this is the way I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. Here's the direction I've decided to go. And we, we might compare it to a diet because that's one of the easiest ways and we can all kind of relate to that, can't we? Uh, of course, we're not talking about anything sinful there necessarily, but we, we've decided here's how I'm going to eat, right? Here's how I'm going to eat. Here's what I'm not going to eat. Here is what I'm going to eat. I've mapped it all out. I've studied it. I've, I've said this is the best sort of diet that I should be on and I should eat this way and not that way. And then we see a piece of cake, right? Or we see a piece of pie or we see some ice cream. And then our passions and our desires say, I want that. Self-restraint is saying, no, I decided, I calculated, I, la I laid out the direction I was going to go. And so I'm not going to throw away my decision and my calculations, my reasoning. When I was thinking straight, I decided this. For, for that which I'm just passionate about in the moment, for this desire I have in the moment. So self-control and self-restraint is about choosing principles over passions. It's about choosing decisions over desires. It's about saying, I, I've decided this is the way I'm going to live. I've decided that I'm going to follow Jesus. I've decided that my life is going to be one of discipleship. And yes, there's, yes, there's going to be passions and desires and longings that I have along the way that I'm going to look at and I'm going to recognize and say, yep, I have that desire. And I could choose that. I could indulge that desire. I could indulge that longing. I could indulge that passion. But I've already decided to go another way. I've already calculated this is the best choice. This is the best direction. This is the best way of life. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to do that. And, and research has shown, back in the 70s, there was a guy who did what, what's known as the marshmallow test. You guys have probably seen this. And they, they took young children, and they sat them down, and they, they measured whether or not they were able to delay gratification. They said, here's a treat, and, and you could eat this treat if you want to. I'm going to leave the room, and I'm going to leave this treat here, and you could have that treat if you want it, or, or you could wait and you get two treats. And they sort of measured how, how well children did at delaying gratification and waiting, controlling themselves, and deciding, deciding, I want two treats instead of just one. And whether or not over the course of 15 minutes, and you know, when you're a toddler, that's eternity, right? So it, whether or not you can go 15 minutes and delay gratification and choose your decisions over your desires, choose your principles over your passions, and they really measured that, and they said, for some reason, those who are able to exercise self-control and self-restraint, to be disciplined, to delay gratification, not only do better academically, but they're successful in all kinds of areas of their life. And of course that would be true, right? Of course that would be true, because, because if we can't even do what we tell ourselves to do, that's what self-control is, isn't it? Self-control is, Wes, do this. Wes, this is the best possible path. Wes, you've decided, here's what you should do. And if I won't even do what I tell myself to do, if I won't even stick to the decisions that I've made for myself, then how can I be successful at much of anything? But this is hard, isn't it? And we all struggle with this. So here's three things 
that I think not only research has shown, but also is backed up in scripture, but three ways to exercise self-control. So three ways to help exercise self-control. The first is this, avoid tempting situations. We probably all know this, but we're, we're really bad at self-control, aren't we? If self-control is like a muscle that, that's exercised over time, there's only so much weight you can lift. There's only so long you can stay in a situation where you desire to do something even though that desire runs contrary to your decisions. Where you have a passion to do something but that passion runs contrary to your principles. There's only so long you can stay in that situation before you give in. And so get out. Or better yet, don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. Uh, A psychologist from the University of Pittsburgh said that people who are good at self-control seem to be structuring their lives in a way to avoid having to make a self-control decision in the first place. That's one of the keys to exercising self-control is don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. If you've decided, if you have principles, if you have calculations that say this is the sort of life I want to live, this is the sort of path I want to take. Then don't put yourself in situations where you might compromise your own principles, where you might compromise your own decisions. Number two, shift your perspective on doing the right thing. Shift your perspective on doing the right thing. An article in Psychology Today said, studies suggest that by mentally framing a task as amusing or beneficial, we can reduce our perceived effort. And we know this, don't we? That when you think of something as hard and challenging and difficult, and you say, oh, I really don't want to do this. It's so hard to do it, but I just have to do it. And it's going to be really hard. I just, I want to do this other thing, but I'm not going to. And I'm going to do this thing, but it's really hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And the more you tell yourself that it's hard and difficult and you don't want to do it, the harder it's going to be to actually follow through and do it. I always think about the, the, literary scene in Tom Sawyer. You remember? And Tom tricks his friends into thinking that whitewashing the fence is a fun thing to do. He tricks them all into thinking this is fun. But whether or not it's a trick is is in the eye of the beholder, right? What if it actually is fun to do work? What if it actually is fun to do this task? What if we reframe the way we think about doing the right thing? The more you tell yourself that doing the right thing is so hard and so difficult and you don't really want to do it, the more challenging it's going to be to do. But when you realize that the path of discipleship is not only good, it could be fun and wonderful and enjoyable and this is the best possible life and why would I want to do anything else? The more you embrace that truth and reframe the way you think about doing the right thing the more you reframe your perspective on discipleship and obedience and self-control, the more you realize, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I've decided to do. And this is the enjoyable life. This is the path that I want to be on. Number three, and I think this is incredibly interesting, is recognize your interdependence. Number three is recognize your interdependence. Now, they, they sort of redid the marshmallow test, and they threw a, a, a sort of a curve in there. And what they did is they took these children, and they, they told them that their partner, so each of them had a partner, and they told them that not only did whether or not they got a second treat depended on whether or not they ate the first treat, 
but also their partner depended on them. So if they were to eat the first marshmallow, not only would they not get a second marshmallow, but their partner in the other room who separated from them, they wouldn't get their marshmallow either. And whether or not that person ate their marshmallow is going to affect whether or not they got a marshmallow. So both partners are depending on each other to be restrained. And if I eat my marshmallow, then not only am I not going to get a second one, but also my, my friend in the other room is not going to get a second one either. And whether or not he eats one is going to impact whether or not I get a second marshmallow. And they found that children are more likely to control their immediate impulses when they and a peer rely on each other to get a reward than when they're left on their own willpower, this research indicated. And, and we see that in reality, and we see that in scripture, don't we? Our interdependence. The fact that your family and my family is depending on us to make good decisions, to stick with what we said we were going to do, to be the kind of people we said we were going to be. And most likely, there's some of us in this room this morning or watching online at home, and you're playing with fire. You're playing with a fire that if you keep messing with that and you keep indulging that and you keep going down that path, not only does it have the power to destroy you, but it has the power to destroy your family. It has the power to affect your family for generations to come. And if we're going to be self-restrained people, if we're going to be self-controlled people, not only do we have to recognize our own dependence on sticking to the path that we said we were going to stick to, but also how our decisions affect the people we love, affect the people in our life. We have to recognize our own interdependence. Look back at 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Again, he says here, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, these qualities being knowledge and virtue and self-control. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we've been stopping the reading the last few weeks, but I want us to go on this morning and read verses 9 through 11, where he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we recognize who we are as Christians, as followers of Jesus? We've been cleansed from our former sins. We've been cleansed from our former sins. Have we, have we forgotten that? Sometimes I think we have forgotten that. We've become so nearsighted that we have become blind and have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our former sins. We have decided we're going to follow Jesus. And Jesus has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us his very great promises. He's given us all of these things. And sometimes we forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget what decisions we made. If we decided, if you decided to become a Christian, if you decided to become a follower of Jesus, if you decided to become a disciple, that was a decision that you made. A decision that I made. I made a very long time ago. I could choose a lot of other paths. 
I could, I could follow a lot of different teachings. I could follow a lot of different people. I could follow a lot of different passions. But I'm going to decide. I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to decide that he's my master. He's my Lord. He's my rabbi. He's my king. I will follow him. And if you're a Christian, you made that same decision. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? What we have in Jesus and what we've decided in Jesus. And that we need to remember that we have to say no to the desires. We have to create homes where we remind ourselves of the decisions that we made. So here's, here's where I want us to land this morning. And here's what I want us to think about as we go throughout our week. That we need to create homes. Create homes where we choose decisions over desires and principles over passions. Maybe, maybe it would be a good exercise if you have children or maybe it's just you and your spouse or maybe it's you and your, your grandkids. Maybe you call your grandkids up. Maybe, you're, maybe you get together with whoever is in your house or is in your extended family and you talk about what are our principles. What are some of the decisions that we made? At my home, we repeat some of our principles every night. We repeat some of our principles every night because I need a daily reminder and I know that my children do as well. And we say that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and we will love our neighbor as ourselves and we will strive to do what's right no matter what. And we say this every night before we say our prayers because we need constant reminding that these are our decisions. These are our principles. And as we decide to follow Jesus, there are going to be times where we have other passions, where we have other desires, where we have other longings that come along and we say, yes, I know what it would feel like to indulge that passion. I know what it would feel like to indulge that desire. But I've decided to go another way. I've decided to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means we choose that decision over desires that run contrary to that decision. We choose these principles over the passions that run contrary to these principles. That's why every week I remind us of our baptism. If you've been baptized into Jesus, that's why I want to not just tell people who haven't been baptized, hey, you could get baptized this morning, but I want the people who have been baptized to remember, this is who you are. You've been cleansed from your former sins. You've become a new person. You've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. All of it is yours in Christ Jesus. So take hold of it and remember who you are. Remember what you have. Remember what you've been gifted. And let's choose decisions over desires. Let's choose principles over passions. Let's choose to be the people we resolved to be, we committed to being when we were baptized into Jesus. Or maybe you're ready to make that decision or to declare your decisions, or to recommit yourself to the decision that you've already made. And maybe we, as your interdependent church family, can help you with that. We are all struggling with these things together, reminding ourselves, encouraging ourselves, holding each other accountable as we live this life that we have resolved to live. And if we can help you in any way this morning, now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.